Welcome to Waste Not a Feed the Need, the podcast for Lawson Fish's Family Kitchen. In today's episode, we have the pleasure to talk to Mike Liaracas, CEO of Abound Food Care. Enjoy. Welcome to Waste Not a Feed the Need, the podcast for Lawson Fish's Family Kitchen. My name is Mauricio Cordova Flores. I'm your co-host. I'm here with David. David, good morning, David. How are you? Good morning, Mauricio. Good to be here, and I wish all of our listeners a wonderful day. Hope all is going well. Yes, we wanna we're gonna do this. Uh, this uh, episode will uh, air a little later, but we do we're doing it on uh, Veterans Day, so we do want to thank everybody for their service. Uh, we're here today with Mike Liarakis, uh, CEO and President of Abound uh, Food Care, a organization in Southern California. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Good morning, gentlemen. How are you doing? Great. I mean, we're, what, what could be better? You know, having a conversation with friends and hanging out on a Friday morning and, uh, you know, with a cup of coffee. And, you know, we're going to learn and, and uh, chat about a bunch of different things. So, you know, let's just, let's, you know, we'll get started with you, Mike. And tell us about yourself, how you got to, you know, this uh, work of food recovery and conservation and uh, about, about food care. What's going on with the organization? Uh, doing fantastic work. And tell us more about it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, it's really ironic. I, I'm third generation food industry. So I was a restaurateur for 30 years, uh, a distributor, and also a uh, poultry processor. So I kind of touched on all areas of the food industry. And in my restaurants, we, uh, we just hated wasting food. Uh, so 10 years ago, 2012, we started this effort. Um, along with the public health officer for the County of Orange, Dr. Eric Handler, uh, and one of the food banks, uh, Orange County Food Bank, we started this effort to recover excess edible food as a way of diverting that food to nonprofit agencies addressing food insecurity. Um, and pretty quickly, we, we just took kind of a food industry approach to it, meaning there were reasons why we never donated, none of which were liability. Almost always uh, the obstacle was brand protection. So we felt confident that if we could mitigate those concerns that donors have or potential donors would have, that they would start donating. And, and sure enough, it was um, <clears throat> mind boggling how quickly entities started donating. Uh, pretty soon it became um, apparent that we were receiving more food than we knew what to do with. Or it was not just as simple as donating food from one donor to one recipient. Um, we started working at the behest of other jurisdictions outside of Orange County. Uh, first up, state of Mississippi. They invited us out to present our model, um, and we realized that our, you know, what we're doing is really um, regional by definition. And when we say regional, we're talking about food industry regions. So we're talking about the western half of the U.S. or the southwest or the Pacific Northwest. Um, and, and we realized that Waste Not OC, which was our original name, uh, first of all, it's a double negative and it limited us to Orange County. So we uh, we rebranded as uh, Abound Food Care. And, and we really liked the idea of food care because it identified what we're trying to do with food. It's this active and passionate protection of food, its process, its cost, and its, its impact. Uh, so that kind of encapsulated what we did. Um, <clears throat> the model has grown. We're now working throughout the state, Northern California, Southern California, other states. And we just basically uh, identify those gaps in the food system and then try to develop solutions to address those gaps. Logistics, um, uh, coordinated logistics, cold storage, the distribution model, food safety, all those areas that we saw as, um, uh, you know, were a hindrance to donating food. Awesome. Thank you so much. I mean, that is, uh, well, I, you know, I knew you guys were doing work throughout the United States, throughout the California, but I didn't know you were in other states. That's that's news to me. So, you know, maybe I haven't asked you the right questions to this point. So sorry about that, Mike. <laughs> you know, I know all the fantastic work you were doing here, but that, that is great to hear that you can, uh, you can take the model and uh, help in other other organizations in other in other states. That is fantastic work uh, on that. Uh, David, what you got for Mike? You know, Mike, it's cool to hear as well. I, I didn't know a lot of that background, and it I love that you made the point about changing the model related to the term food care because it really changes the the way that the effort is perceived and appreciated and accepted. 
So my my follow up would be so you've done all this activity. You're you're in this place now related to that uh, that evolution that you just shared with us. How do you how do you connect that with all of the efforts that we're so involved in with the the law SB 1383, that thing that no one really knows about, right? <laughs> we, we never talk about that. We're never involved in. And, and you know, and I'm totally being facetious here. This is a, a law that all of us are actively involved in trying to find solutions for. So that said, Mike, if, if you could just share, how, how did it fit? So you go from a food care thought and, and did some wonderful work. How did that uh uh, morph into, and I wouldn't want to use the word morph, but uh, evolve into your activity with helping to support SB 1383 activities. Sure. You know, it's really interesting. Um, we had always, uh, when we started this effort, we identified that there were cost benefits of food donation for donors beyond just the tax deductions that are available and the tax break. Um, you know, there were other ancillary benefits. Uh, first of all, almost unanimously, when a donor starts to participate, the first step is to identify what your wasted items are. What's your excess food? What type and how much? And it started in my restaurant. And I remember going, geez, I'm asleep when we are <laughs> we're closed. I had no idea what we were throwing <laughs> away. I just look at my P&L every month. And if my food cost is in a certain range, I'm either happy or sad. You know, we'll make adjustments if it's too high. When we saw the log, we're like, you know, certain things stand out and you're like, well, we can make production changes and we can make procurement changes and that's going to reduce our costs. So there's a cost benefit beyond just the tax deduction. Sure enough, every segment of the industry that participated in this saw that same result. School districts, uh, distributors, uh, restaurants, hotels, grocery, all of them saw that ability to adjust their uh, internal procedures to reduce waste, which is what we're all trying to do. Um, ironically, though, the beauty of 1383, and we lobbied hard for 1383 to include edible food because it's such a major uh, contributor to landfills. But what it did is it brought all these players together, meaning when we first approached waste haulers, they're like, uh, we, we deal with waste. We, you know, we don't care what goes in it. It's not our concern. Uh, totally understood. Uh, but SB 13.3 brought jurisdictions together because they are, in essence, the contract holders with, with haulers. It brought haulers into it. It brought all these different segments that touch on, on food waste. Um, and then, of course, the reality is there's unintended consequences in, in bringing in uh, jurisdictions, meaning municipalities, and putting the onus on them as the contract holder. Uh, what we've really done also is – Towards the duplication of efforts city by city. So I always equate city by city by city as urban warfare. We're going door to door and it's a slugfest. Uh, and that's why I'm a big advocate of more regional programs because it's, uh, it enhances the resources that are available. It reduces duplication of efforts. And then the other unintended consequence that we kind of help fill or that we've evolved into is we work on behalf of those jurisdictions because it's really falling on the public works environmental waste recycling side. So we're asking people who have no understanding of the food industry or how food flows uh, or those gaps. And we're asking them to kind of spearhead this on behalf of their jurisdiction. And, and that's, you know, that's unfortunate. It's unfair. So together we walk through this and we marry the food industry with the, with the public sector. And of course, the ones who are doing the heavy lifting in all of this, the, the soldiers on the ground, uh, that's the nonprofit agencies and the volunteers that that assist with this. Yeah, Mike, and, and I know that the activity that I where I met you actually is through the California Resource Recovery Association, um, the Edible Food uh, Recovery uh, Technical uh, Committee, uh, the executive committee in you know, I know that you you've really been involved in helping to get groups of people to talk at the table about some of the bumpy conversations that show up because we're challenging local jurisdictions to change behavior. We're challenging local jurisdictions to pay for things that may they may not have considered previous to SB thirteen eighty three. And I wonder if you could share some of your experiences about how you went about collaborating with, as you mentioned, it had to become regional. How did you get that that energy going and get people to the table to have these 
these really sometimes uncomfortable, bumpy discussions? Uh, you know, really, it comes down to, and, and ironically, you mentioned we met through the CRRA, uh, Edible Food Recovery TC. That's where I first met Mauricio. You guys are in Northern California. I'm in Southern California. Immediately, we saw that there's this dividing line between the state. So when Mauricio and I agreed to do this, it was because we wanted so to true. SoCal, NorCal, SoCal, NorCal. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it goes beyond it's been just that water. Way since I was a kid. Yes, it's been that way since I was a child. So it's just the way it is. Sorry, Mike. I just I couldn't help myself. Go ahead. No, it's so true, though. It's so true. And we, you know, there's different challenges, you know, everywhere. But it was more a matter of we needed to bridge that gap between northern and southern and more importantly, between rural and urban. So I would always hear, well, this may have worked where you're at, but it doesn't work where I'm at. And we had to explain and show through uh, our work uh, leading by example, that we're just re-engineering or reversing the process of food distribution. So, so if food gets to your neighborhood or your area, food can get back out. That's really what we had to show, is that we can bridge that divide and that gap. And working together, we would be able to have, again, access to greater resources. But as we did that, we started to bring in more stakeholders. I wanted this this uh, resource recovery world, the environmental side of it, the public work side, I wanted to introduce them to the concerns of the food industry, um, the practical understanding of the challenges that they face. So what theoretically might look good is still a problem. And that's where we're at right now is that, again, that unintended consequence is if you are a multi-unit food industry operator, regardless of what, what, what sector, retail, grocery, restaurant, hotel, regardless, you are now being approached by every city where you have a location and being asked to participate in a program based on what that city is advocating for or implementing. And multi-unit operators will tell you, you can't run a business that way. You know, employees will move from, from store to store. They'll transfer to other regions. Um, you, you know, you have to be able to have a system-wide solution to some of these things. And that's kind of the other area we roll into is we work on behalf of the food industry to develop these system-wide programs on their behalf. And then also work on behalf of the jurisdiction and, and really making sure that, that, you know, both are compliant with 1383. So that's how it all started with uh, CRA. That's, that was the logic behind bringing in additional stakeholders and looking beyond just the letter of the law. So I don't want to bore you with this, but the reality. No, I know, Mike. You know, yeah, this isn't. You aren't boring us. This is what we do, and this is <laughs> the purpose of. You know, I, and I say this in every episode. I am a hippie with short hair, and <laughs> and this is the effort that all of us are doing collectively to try to not only implement but execute plans that support this wonderful law that was created. And there's been bumpiness. And, and, and someone like yourself who's willing to get out there and talk about it and bring people to the table has been quite encouraging to those of us that are out doing the same thing. So it's a long-winded way to say thank you, Mike, for your effort. So, Mauricio? No. Yeah, you know, I was kind of touch base, touch a little bit in what Mike said. You know, we uh, were invited to start the uh, Edible Food Recovery Te Technical Council at CRA uh, you know, a little bit of two years ago now. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, we didn't know what we were getting into. Uh, you know, we were asked if we, we wanted to, uh, and it's funny because we both, we said, okay, you want it, you want it, you want it, you want it. And then like, I didn't care. So we ended up being coaches or whatever. And, and it worked out really good. And, and the thing about it that I think made it so great to what you mentioned, Mike, is we were looking at different points of views. We're looking at Southern California, Northern California, uh, small food recovery. Well, because we're smaller than what you guys do, smaller food, uh, food recovery with a different aspect uh, and everything else. And, you know, it allowed us to bring in opinions and different things or whatever and made the group very diverse to where I think right now is really, really now taking shape and it will be dramatically more impactful than it was we found we just set up a foundation right and uh and that was the part that was it was a lot of fun to do it and i had a great time and uh you know i want to say you know thank you for those uh hanging up for for together for those two years doing that that was fantastic oh, happy to it was fun yeah. and i gotta share with you through that yeah. there was an evolution that took place um uh -huh. and it's something yeah. that's spreading so for no example doubt. yeah for example mauricio and i 
do not agree on everything. And that's great. <laughs> you know, we'll argue, we'll push each other, we'll, we'll challenge each other. And that's what I really don't know great. anything about that, Mike, at all whatsoever. <laughs> that's a lie. It's an but absolute here's the lie. Advantage. Here's the advantage. <laughs> we'll take now just Orange County. Orange County, uh, we had two, we have two food banks in a lot of areas and cities and regions where there's multiple food banks. One might be a Feeding America, one might be a community action partnership or private right. or another entity. And they don't always work together. It's just the reality of nonprofit. We reward uh, organizations to work in silos. It's just the nature of philanthropy, unfortunately. <laughs> So yeah, we've looked true. at we've looked at well, we've got to change we got to turn this tide, and we were able to form a hunger alliance in Orange County where it was look we have two food banks, and we had a bound and and just to be clear we do not recover excess edible food, we facilitate the development of these regional food recovery programs, so we'll do it as a way of volunteering or we'll do it to assist nonprofit partners. Our strength is being able to work collaboratively with every nonprofit agency, yep. every jurisdiction. And, you know, in other words, we are not a we, we're not a player at the table, so to speak. Uh, <clears throat> so we have that ability to see a, a higher view. But the benefit is through the Hunger Alliance, we were allowed to challenge each other in a small room with just three entities, because in a larger group, you play to the audience. Nothing gets done. But we were able to redefine success. It's no longer how many pounds of food recovered, how many food, pounds of food distributed, or even how many families served. We identified success as the impact and how many people whose lives we can improve through the access of excess edible food that is nutritious. And as we go through 1383, and we're going to be spending money we're trying to figure out the revenue streams now. Is it going to be municipalities? Is it going to be through haulers, through landfill tip fees? Is it going to be through a recycling um, um, model? Regardless of where it comes from, are generators going to help pay for this? Um, is the public going to pay for this as the ultimate consumer? Regardless, it's going to be incumbent upon us to show that return on investment and be transparent regarding the effectiveness. So yeah. if we look at it, we're going to yeah we lost her for a second mike you're there we uh we lost you you're on mute mike oh my goodness gracious that it's was okay if you, it's okay if so you, you go back like 30 seconds and then we'll, we will edit this out so don't worry about it oh my cord hit the mute button i'm so sorry yeah. about that <laughs> Okay, so if we if we look at the impact that food can have, yeah. then we're really looking at identifying what that return on investment is. So as we look at, again, all this money that will have to be spent or should be spent or will be spent, regardless of what the funding models are, the reality is that recovering food is a cost. Sorting that product to determine what's usable is a cost. Distributing it to people in need is a cost. So what we're left with is the value of that food as a nutritional supply. Mm -hmm. uh, if we are clogging the system with bread that has no nutrition, then we don't have throughput. So in the state, we've done capacity studies. But what we really need to look at is throughput and capacity. It's the ability to utilize this excess food. And if we look at and we go further down that line we just explained, you have the value of that food. But it goes further than that. If we're using and developing food repurposing kitchens to um, repurpose that excess food into meals, nutritious meals, and we have vocational training programs attached to it, and that is a, a social determinant of health that helps reduce poverty and homelessness, then there's a cost benefit on that end of it. If we can reduce homelessness because all those other social determinants of health uh, really can, can piggyback off of the need for people to eat every day. In other words, get the solutions to where the food is at. Yeah. Chemical dependency counseling, mental health counseling, et cetera. Right when on. we do this, now we can right fully on. extend out. Here's the cost. Here's the impact on their health. Here's the cost mm -hmm. savings of having people who are off the street or are healthier adults, healthier children. They learn better, et cetera. Now we're looking yeah. at something beyond just this is the cost of recovering food. We now know what that food supply, that nutrition, what impact that has. Goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and 
truly, I think that's a wonderful way to to consider and continue the effort because I think you, what what you've just presented is a way to bring in wraparound services. It doesn't just become a, the food recovery. It becomes food is medicine. It becomes, hey, this food can help people to have nutritious options. Hey, this food can help the society you live in become better enabled to success, to be, to find success, right? So it, I love, I love the point that you make in that respect. And I, I, I love that we're involved in similar uh, activities to support mm-hmm. the effort because it's not just about food recovery, is it, Mike? It's, it's about more than that. And well, we always you know, say that. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's funny. No. We always say, especially when we talk to philanthropists and charitable giving organizations, we always say uh, you can fund activity or you can fund impact. Uh, food yeah. recovery is an activity. Yeah. There's no guarantee it's going to have an impact. In other words, if the majority mm-hmm. of what we are recovering is bread that has no impact, then Perfect. it's just an exercise. If if there's no outlet for that, it's ultimately still going to be wasted. So we've just spent money and human capital in getting in the way of going direct from you know, the entity that has it to where it needs to go, which is a diversion uh, program. So there's there's these steps and there's a, a real difference between activity and impact. And yes, the, 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 the final component of that is and, and what we've been working hard on is uh, and we've had good success now up and down the state is rolling in the healthcare systems. Uh, because in order to track data effectively, uh, there's gonna, we're going to have to track the overall effect on individuals' health and then the dollar savings or the, uh, the uh, financial impact. Only mm-hmm. healthcare providers can do that because of HIPAA requirements or r- limitations. And that's not our wheelhouse. We can evaluate the data on an environmental side. And we can environment, we can um, evaluate the data from a food industry side of it, but we need the healthcare industry to get involved. We need to connect all those dots. Yeah, yeah that's so yeah, true. That's- and and I, I love how you bring that in, Mike. And it seems like the net the next frontier, uh, I'll say, because we're we're looking at tier two being a part of what business owners are looking at and that's the next level of expectation based on the SB 1383 guidelines and so it may provide an opportunity for us to influence the business community to understand hey it's bigger than just the fact that you have to t- teach your team how to be creative with food costs and make sure that you're not tossing those edible items into the trash, which then goes into the landfill, which then turns into greenhouse gases. If you do this and you put it in this package, guess what? You're helping the community that you live in to get healthier. And and it's supporting the society that you live in. And I think that frame is so much easier to to stomach, I'll just say, uh, versus you must, you must, you must, regulatory, regulatory. You're going to be fined if you don't. Business owners are going to back away from that and say, well, we can just compost, um, have a good day. Right. And yeah. I think, yeah. you know, and I, I don't mean to get on my soapbox, Mike, I, do I it, just do it. Do it. Do it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's just such, for me, it's such a wonderful um, and inspiring thing to see that we as individuals are trying so hard to approach this, this, this problem. This problem of climate change, this problem of societal need, this problem of social inequity, and we can do it with food. And food is medicine. And and then we can connect these wraparound services to the effort that we're doing, which in turn, funders would love to hear. And to your point, again, the healthcare, you know, less prescriptions, more food, less prescriptions, more produce, right? So anyway, that's me jumping on my... My opinion, Ben. You're right. You're absolutely right. I appreciate it. The the last component of this is that, you know, we really have to be intellectually honest with ourselves. We need to track data. So if we have a food recovery program and we're not tracking the food waste at that nonprofit agency, then we really have no idea how effective we are. We know what we're (laughs) rescuing. We don't know how effective we are at distributing and getting and making an impact with that food. And it's I think it's incumbent upon all of us to start tracking that waste because it tells a story, either a story of success or it identifies weaknesses 
either logistic weaknesses or uh, systemic weaknesses that we can address if we if we're if we're able to see where where it's at. No you know, thank you, Mike. Yes, uh, uh, yes to all of that. Thank you so much for that. I mean, you know that we we touched a little bit in some of the challenges and some of the things. Um, and then one of the one of the things, Mike, that you mentioned. Uh, and you talked about it a little before we went down to uh, Oceanside for the conference uh, in, uh, in in uh, July, but it was about throughput, and you you touched on that a couple of times. You can pick, you can bring, and you mentioned it right at the beginning when you were talking about uh, having a purpose for food recovery. You know, you can recover as much food as you can. I mean, we could potentially you know do more and more and more, but it's making sure that it gets to the right people to the right places because otherwise. People are going to receive food that they might not need, they don't want, or whatever. It's going to be thrown away. So we're back to you know what we're trying to avoid. And uh, as the law is starting to change and growing, uh, and you know we went from tier one, tier two, in case folks don't. Uh, I mean, we talked about it in thirteen eighty three in our in some of our past episodes. That is the greenhouse emissions law that passed in twenty fifteen to reduce organics in uh, in an environment by reducing by that reducing methane. So and then twenty percent of all the food or organics waste that goes to landfills needs to uh, go to human consumption. So we're talking about the twenty percent. Now, that twenty percent is important that it gets picked up and and and, and recovered and delivered to the right people, to the right organizations and stuff like that. Uh, the first part of the organizations that really were involved was the entry part of the law, where a lot of the grocery stores, uh, some food, food distributors, and so forth. The next one is the prepared food, which is going to be uh, uh, restaurants and big catering companies and so forth. Uh, now, recovering groceries is maybe a little simpler than the prepared food. What do you think are the challenges of prepared food? What are the things that are going to be different than groceries? Groceries, like I said, food banks have been doing it for a while. So I would say we kind of have that one down to a science, or not science, but you know, we got we got a component. Prepare food. It's a brand new problem. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? What do you think are going to be the cha- the major challenges of all of that, Mike? Yeah, you know, tier two and prepared food. That's the eighty twenty rule in effect here. Eighty percent of the effort, time, expense, and risk is going to be spent on recovering twenty percent of the food. In other words, it's the it's the last press of olive oil, so to speak. You know, it's it's the stuff on the bottom. It's really volatile. Food safety has to be the primary concern. Handling hot food is very difficult. Um, you know, I personally am a big fan of keeping it through the uh, through the cold chain, meaning we as operators are, are experts in what we do. We're trained on how to handle food. Mm-hmm. I would much rather see that food chilled at my locations rather than send it to a volunteer at a nonprofit agency that may or may not have the same level of skill. So, uh, and then we run the risk of it not being handled correctly. We saw it just, I mean, over and over, but just recently, several hotel pans of food, a well-meaning agency with a well-meaning trained volunteer took this hot product in in disposable hotel pans and put it into a freezer. They thought they did everything right. Unfortunately, <laughs> there was no air gap between the pants. So if you have, I think with 16 pans stacked up, oh, uh, the product yeah. in the middle never, fr- it didn't freeze before, you know, mold built up. Um, that bacteria growth is substantial. So yeah. food safety is still going to be the biggest concern and the biggest obstacle. And then there's also the logistics uh, reality of not only are we able to go and pick up a one hotel pan from somewhere, yeah. Where is it going to go? And and how much have we really impacted the environment if we're spending, uh, if we're sending a volunteer who may have an SUV and we're, and we're having them drive 20 minutes to go drop off one pan of excess food, which may or may not even be consumed. Those are the realities we have to look at and face and discuss in my estimation. Yeah. And I, I think it, the, the points are valid. And, you know, there are still organizations that are saying that they're doing food recovery and they're freezing salad like literally trays upon hotel sheet pan trays of, you know, the steam tray, full-size steam trays that we use in in kitchens, they're freezing solid. So it goes back to sometimes I think the need for there to be a dedicated idea about what food recovery looks like. It's not just, Hey, we've just checked the box 
and we can sign up and say we're doing food recovery. It's also about do we put certain specific ingredient items together if it's edible food? Do we put onions in with the the protein uh, entree item that we're going to make uh, classified as edible food to be used in a, in a new way or be repurposed? So I think we still have opportunities because there's still some companies that, you know, they're saying they're doing food recovery. However, when you open up the container that's been donated, you can't do anything with it other than turn it into compost or in our case, we can biodigest it. So it's, it's still, there, there's still bumpiness there, Mike. And, and, and I yeah. think, you know, we, we all continue to, to need to talk about it as we do, right? It's the 80, 20, 30, right? 80% of the work's done by 20% of the people. And I know we're involved in the 20%. Um, and, so it's, it's how do we get others engaged? How do we, and I'm not saying they aren't because there's more activity going on now than ever before. And I'm so grateful uh, to that. Um, so anywho, uh, side note. To your, to your point earlier though, uh, it's that risk. So you're right. There, there may be efforts that are not as sophisticated. It may not be doing things correctly, but that all goes back to, what you commented on earlier is that there may not be enough inspectors. If, if an if an entity doesn't want to participate, mm-hmm. it's going to be really hard to force them to, they may, yeah. do, they may check the box, but they're really not because we haven't uh, mitigated that risk that they see uh, to their brand. So if that yeah. salad, or if it's a prepared item, that's not handled like one of those 16 pans of food and someone gets sick on that food, Environmental health is going to trace it back to the donor. And even though there's no liability on the part of the donor, the brand is associated with it. And all of us care more about our brand than anything else. I remember, Mm. I think it was Disney or maybe it was um, uh, Angels Baseball. One of them made the comment, we get sued every day. (laughs) We can handle that. What we can't handle is somebody getting sick on food that we tried to do the right thing with and donate to a nonprofit that is either untrained or doesn't have the right resources. Yeah, agreed. Agreed, Mike. And that's a, such a valid point. I know this will continue to evolve and our conversations will continue to get more meaty and more, you know, we'll, we're, we're going to come up with solutions. I mean, what's wonderful is is on the TC that we're both involved in, Cal Recycle is part of the conversation, which is awesome. And we're able to share with Cal Recycle some of our learnings and we're able to ask some questions of Cal Recycle. And it's really been a benefit. I think there's still opportunity. However, I think we're headed in the right direction. And and Mike, I I say that to you specifically because I know in the last couple of years that I've known you on, you know, directly or indirectly, you've been actively involved in getting people to the table. So I just want to thank you for your effort, Mike. I appreciate it. But but I think it's also important, though, as you know, we've been involved with Cal Recycle for many years now on this. And I, as a food guy, didn't understand the process. Um, after working with them, we see that there's a process they're obligated to walk through. And I've been actually very impressed with the edible food team that has done this. They're very receptive. They listen to everything. Uh, Again, we tend to be frustrated because we, uh, in our businesses, we tend to be able to make (laughs) adjustments and changes right away. That ain't how a law works. (laughs) That's not how rulemaking works. Yeah. Yeah. That patience. Yeah. And also the importance of them hearing from all different sectors is critical. So the food industry has to be active in sharing what their concerns are. And uh, Cal Recycle has been very receptive in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, which which brings me to there's a lot of funding out there, grants and stuff that will start businesses, you know, little, uh, uh, you know, little pockets of money or whatever. And that's organizations that maybe are doing not doing food recovery but they're doing something else and it's like hey they're funding there and i need the money i'm just going to jump into food recovery right and i'm not saying that there's so we don't probably need more organizations involved on that but i think is we need to make sure that whatever whoever comes on on and to what you mentioned earlier is not just somebody trying to do the right thing which is hey i'm gonna get a bunch of my friends to pick up food distribute it because we're doing the good thing we went to the restaurants we took it to the soup kitchens or whatever well, you know, they did the food safety. Did the food really get eaten? There's a lot of different things, right? So there's a lot of different, you know, uh, grassroots movements going with this. A lot of organizations jumping in because there's money. Again, I don't want to 
make it sound like I don't want more more organizations jumping into food recovery. But there's got to be some sort of uh, standard or some of the things that we all need to do the same best practices, safety, and so forth. And uh, having a conversation with the general by the name of Nick Lapis that everybody knows here, he mentioned uh, about what about a certification uh, of uh, for food uh, for. Uh, uh, for food recovery organizations, right? Something that, you know, you have to do some training, get some education, and that way at least you, you're familiar with what, you know, or you have knowledge of best practices and some of the things that you should be doing to make sure that, to your point, you know, nobody gets sick or the food doesn't get wasted and all the other things that we talked about, right? So what are your thoughts about that? Is that something that you think, I mean, just like any certification, it will be something that is volunteer. Right, but now you know if you want to be an HR person, you need to have a SPHR or a SRAM PR, PR whatever uh, certification. And if you want to do operations, you need to have a Six Sigma certification. All those little with time became almost necessities, right? Because if you don't have the certification, we really don't think you know what you're doing. But uh, um, I think it's something that at least will allow us to establish best practices and safety standards that will be, you know, almost. Uh, practice uh, similarly or to the, almost the same degree throughout at least the state of California. So with that, what, what are your thoughts on, on something like that, Mike? Is it feasible to do? Yeah, I think if we look at the origin, the history of it, we have Feeding America, who was the first one to really put together standards for their member agencies. Um, and they're very good at it. Um, but unfortunately, not every agency, to your point, uh, is a Feeding America member. So we still have to worry about in other words, we have to rise all the boats, so to speak. We've got to make sure that everybody, every player in that space has adequate food safety training. Mm -hmm. And and we need to hold uh, nonprofit agencies. In other words, if, if, protect, if protecting public safety is first and foremost, which it should be, then we should all be held to the same standards. If restaurant workers have to go through training on how to handle food because it protects the public health, then we should expect the same of anybody handling food, and that includes nonprofits. Certification process would be a great way of providing that education. We've utilized third-party food safety um, uh, auditors. So basically, they're, they're former um, environmental health specialists, um, and they work for the industry. In other words, uh, us in the industry, we don't wait for the health department to come and inspect us. We use third-party auditors to inspect us first so that we know we don't have to worry about having a health or uh, running afoul of the health department and finding our name in the, in the newspaper. So certification process works great. The question is going to be, who's going to do this? Is it going to be environmental health? Well, you have a disparity, and I hate to bring up the north-south thing again, but you have funding <laughs> streams for health departments in the northern part of the state that you don't have in the southern part, uh, part of the state. So some of the health departments in Southern California will go, I, I, you know, we can't raise, we can't double their, their environmental health fees so that we adjust or we uh, tackle nonprofit agencies. I think their certification, we even looked at starting our own, you know, a, a national certification, but they're already there. Uh, national Restaurant Association has the ServeSafe program. I would much rather see ServeSafe programs be adjusted specifically for nonprofit feeding, emergency feeding, and food recovery. I think that's a way of taking the existing programs, funneling out what's not necessary. Uh, the average volunteer doesn't need to know uh, the details about the makeup of bleach and the microorganisms and, you know, or facility design. I don't think they need to know that. They need to know the basics of time, temperature, food handling, bacteria growth, what, uh, how to maintain temperatures, et cetera. If we can drill down to that, then, and we can uh, keep it affordable or the cost is underwritten. Now we've got an ability to train everybody who will work in this space. And it's, and, and it will also be a, pretty quick training. In other words, it's not going to be a three hour, you know, serve safe managerial program. It's going to be something pretty concise, pretty quick. And now everybody has a basic understanding of how to handle food. So what about, you know, standards uh, of organizations, for example, making sure that you have the right uh, uh, equipment to transport food to be able to keep it hot or warm or things like that, because yeah, I hear, you know, I understand the part you were talking about on the, I guess what Mike and I don't agree at times sometimes, but, you know, is the organization that are going to go out and pick up, you know, a thousand pounds of food or, you know, 400 trays of uh, lasagna or something like that, 
and they're going to use a volunteer or they're going to use a truck and they feel that they have enough time for you know a, a non-control non-temperature controlled vehicle and they feel that they can do that then you know that kind of thing so that's kind of where i think my my part is be able to that they have as organization some sort of uh, 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 standards or procedures to understand how much, you know, be able to say first, they have to teach, learn how to say no. And uh, if they're going to take something that is too big for them and pass it on to somebody else, but be able to, if you do get it, how are you going to handle that safely? Do you have the right processes in place to be able to move it through the system and to make sure that it gets to the right organizations so it doesn't get wasted and so forth. And that's kind of what more than what I'm talking about is, is not only just the uh, person handling the food itself. Great, that that's that's important. But I'm talking about what happens when organizations are trying to collect food on their fridges or they're picking it up and dropping it in other places and they haven't thought to the process and things are going to waste anyway. That's sort of more what I, I was kind of maybe thinking about uh, on that part, the whole throughput, have that, process in place, you know, have somebody says, yes, you have this in place, you have organizations that can take your food, you have thought, you got contingencies in case they can't take it, where you can take it and keep it cold or freeze it or whatever. That's sort of the, the because that's where I see some of the things are faltering uh, with, with that, people trying to use cambrios or coolers or whatever to transport food. It's just not, it's not sustainable. That's not what we're trying to do. Uh, there's investment on vehicles and so forth to do this the right way and make sure that everything doesn't get wasted, right? So anyhow, that's kind of more about I was thinking about on that certification part, more than just the the uh, food handling cert save that uh, you know we we had to do ourselves, well, uh, you know, manager or whatever. Can you, yeah. yeah. Can you repeat the question? No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> 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 you know, Typical. Mike, may I inter- may I interject? You know, I, I I think that what you brought up as a point is something that I haven't heard a lot of discussion around, and I really like the idea. And it took me off on one of my own tangents because that's what I do, and that's how we solve problems together, right? What if the serve safe expectation for food handling was also they integrated food recovery into that certification? So it's additional uh information that an individual would need to be certified in in order to say their food handler certifies right and it's it's not something that's there within the curriculum now however could we take a look at how to revisit the need uh for educating um individuals who are in the food service uh space on how to talk about food recovery as well as food safety, right? Yeah, David. And I know that that's that's a lofty goal, and that's no, utopian David, thought. I think, I, I think it would point, work. To your point, what makes that affordable is we're not adding, we're subtracting. We're taking a yeah a, a pretty comprehensive program and certification process, and we're just taking items out that don't apply. That's always yeah. easier than adding. To Mauricio's point. On the, on the facility side, I totally agree. And I think it's the same principle, which is if we are holding a restaurant or a hotel or a distributor accountable for this level of performance because it's in the best interest of public safety, mm-hmm. um, then we should be holding anybody who's handling food to that same level. Now, but I will yeah. say, I, I'm not, I, I think if we do that, then we're sticking to Cal Code in California. And if we stick to Cal Code, it's, and we've done it from the day we started this program, the, you have to check time and temperature. There's an yep. assumption that if you have a refrigerated vehicle, you're handling it safely. Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. The reefer could be out. Uh, maybe maybe the Freon leak is there, and they hear the motor blowing, but you don't have a cold enough box. Or yeah. you are using a Cambro because you're only going two blocks. But if you check time and temperature, meaning what time was it picked up, what was the temperature when it was picked up, what it was the time it was dropped off and put into uh, cold storage and what was the temperature you've mitigated that food safety risk. Uh, so yeah, I totally agree. It is important in many cases to have the proper equipment, but we need to hold uh, the standards are already written through Cal code. We just need to be able to allow nonprofits to work under the same set of guidelines. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. And I think, I think as we continue the conversation, as a group and as a state um, and the many 
agency partners that we communicate with and committees that we sit on. I think we will continue to chip away at those uncomfortable conversations because I think the only way that you get out is through, right? Um, And that's one of those barriers. Um, And what I mean specifically is the understanding of what is food safe. We're not driving around Jeeps and picking up food that you couldn't use in your kitchen. We're coming with with a temperature-controlled vehicle uh, we at Loaves and Fishes do log time and temp, and not all do. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy about our, our, our program. However, it's not the Loaves and Fishes show. Oh, wait, yes, it is. Um, but, you know, we, we, <laughs> we have, we, you know, we have a tendency, I think, as a, as a group to sometimes forget that, hey, what about the boots on the ground? Like, what's really happening there? And they're not doing it because they want to make someone sick. They're doing it because maybe a protocol isn't well explained or maybe the reason behind why we're doing certain things, the the nonprofit may not have had the opportunity or the time to be able to communicate it to their volunteer. So it's not that the intentions aren't pure. It's just it's there's just so much uh, confusion around what's what's the appropriate uh, food handling practice for food recovery and I think we just continue the conversation. And I think that as we do that, I I really feel confident that we'll continue to improve upon the processes and procedures. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a matter. And as we mentioned earlier, it is still a matter of we're, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So, uh, you know, we do need to elevate everybody's game. Uh, but you're right. I mean, we're very fortunate. We have, uh, you guys who are doing it right, who serve as an example and, you know, you lead by example. Um, so, it really helps when organizations like yours who have been doing this, who have it down can show the way. And that's why for our hunger Alliance that we started just in orange County, what was important was other smaller agencies can roll up into organizations that are more sophisticated with it. So there's a mentoring component to what you would be doing because you're mentoring other smaller organizations. But the other factor we have to consider here is that, it's human nature. We're creatures of habit. Food recovery isn't new. <laughs> yeah. It's been going on for decades and decades. The problem we yeah. have is you'll have an organization that says, we've been doing it like this for 25 years and we're not going to change. So that's why I think it's important that we show the uh, the benefit of elevating the game because it's going to lead to greater participation, greater access to, to food. And ultimately, we, we all reach our goal, which is to reduce food waste and feed people in need. Agreed. Agreed. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to come up with some consensus because, you know, we all have different opinions. We see it in a different way. And that's, you know, but that is a good thing. It's a good, it's a good discussion. And that's what's going to move us forward uh, as we continue on a, uh, a path of uh, not only reducing methane, which, you know, has to do with all the organics going into the landfills and so forth, but also providing important nutritional food that many folks in, in California need, you know, and, and in areas that are to their wealthy, like the Bay Area and Orange County and some other, other parts of the state, uh, you know, the fourth largest economy in the world has maybe one of the biggest food problems, you know, uh, of uh, fish residents uh, problems. So that's it's kind of interesting how they go hand in hand at times. But uh, yes, thank you for the conversation, gentlemen. Is there anything else that uh, you guys want to add before we, we wrap this up? And uh and, uh, yeah, Mike. Well, I, I, yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you, Mike, was was there any closing thoughts that you'd like to communicate to our listeners about, you know, what's on what's on your radar and what you may need specific support for uh, in the efforts that you're doing? Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I think there's a couple of things. When we talk to other states and other areas of the country, everybody's watching California to see how we deal with 1383. And I think it's going to be vitally important that we're able to be um, the standard bearer in identifying our strengths, our weaknesses, our successes, and our failures, because uh, it will benefit the rest of the country and ultimately the rest of the, uh, the world. Um, and, and that's why it's, it'll be vitally important that we track data, that we evaluate our processes. You know, we all need to put egos aside. We need to put our organizations aside and look at the bigger picture. And that, again, that impact we can all have. 
And I got to share with you, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. I mean, it's always fun. We always chat for a long time, <laughs> but especially uh, for you guys, because you were with me when I saw my first tornado and uh, you saw me <laughs> look like an absolute idiot. But <laughs> No, you didn't. It was awesome. I had a great time. That was fun. Yeah. It was fun to be able to tell you what was going to happen. And then it did. <laughs> well, you know what? When you're from Southern California, you've seen the same weather for nine straight months. I was just excited to see something other than, you know, sunny skies yeah, and 70 degrees. And, you know, and to the listeners, it was like a, a large group of 40 and up men and ladies going outside, watching this storm come through. And if none of you have experienced a, a really strong thunderstorm or a hailstorm or a tornado, it was like I was witnessing, you know, five and 10 year olds seeing their first rainstorm. And it was so wonderful. It was so joyful yeah. to see the giggling and the laughter. And we allowed ourselves to be kids. Yeah. We all got soaked because it was a considerable storm. However, yeah. Mike, I was happy to be your witness. That was yeah. fun as heck. Yeah, Mike was yeah, Mike has his phone out and he's taping it, you know, taking it, it to his kids. And all the all the locals are looking at us like you people are idiots, right? Uh, we're from California. Yeah. So. We were almost a headline. Idiot tourist yeah. gets yes. hit by lightning. <laughs> but the one it's thing I don't smacked. think I shared yeah. with you, the one thing I don't yeah. think I shared with you, I got back. I had rented a condo up Airbnb. I got back, yeah. and I realized I left the window open. Oh. <laughs> Didn't even think about that. We don't close windows. No. No. Flash flood, flash flood in the car. Yeah. You're talking to a guy that didn't go to school when it rained. Wow. Yeah, that you mentioned. Right you, you, you felt to mention that one. Oh my God. So, yeah. gentlemen, thank you so much for the time. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you for your time, Mike. I I really yeah. appreciate it, and, and we'll see each other in the ether. Sounds, Sounds great, man. You guys are people I've always admired. What you're doing, how we've worked together. Um, so I appreciate the time, appreciate your cooperation and uh, the ability to be honest, challenge each other. I just value that more than, you know, right, right well, on. And, and just want to just yeah. make a mention to our sponsor, um, Cal EPA, for making making funds available for Mauricio and I to involve ourselves in this effort and uh, to bring great speakers and, and communicators like Mike to the table to talk about solutions and things that are going on in, in our world. So thanks again. Yes. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. Until next time. Ciao.